0: Hey, everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com membership and use the coupon code podcast10 to get 10% off an annual plan. Special thanks to Omida, the exclusive sponsor of season two of the AMO podcast. My guest this week is Chris Farrell, founder and CEO of Endeavor Business Media. In this 40-minute conversation, we talked about his evolution from alt newspaper publisher to acquiring dozens of brands from some of the largest B2B events companies in the world. We dug into how he uses debt to acquire smaller B2B media companies and then integrate them with the same tech stack and marketing opportunities across the entire ecosystem. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So it seems to me that you've been building towards today since 2004, when you were the publisher of Nashville Scene, then CEO of Southcom, and now CEO of Endeavor Business Media. Can you walk me through your media journey?
1: (laughs) Sure. It's a, you know... 18 year overnight success story. Right. Um, no, I, uh, uh, it, it actually began before that, you know, in 1997, I got hired to work at city search, which I would say was my first, uh, media experience, you know, early days of the internet where I had a job of, you know, explaining to people, you know, what websites were and, uh, why you wanted one. Um, and, uh, I often joke that I was the only person who went from internet to print. Um, and, uh, so, uh, after that I had a, an internet marketing company for about five years and then I got a call to, uh, uh, interview to be the publisher of the Nashville scene, which was our local all weekly here in Nashville. Um, and th- it was owned by village voice at the time. And, uh, they hired me to, uh, to be the, be the publisher. Um, my brother, who was a, a journalist, called me up and said, "You know, in the newsroom, we always wondered what the requirements were to be a publisher. Now I know there are none." Um, and so, um, but it was great. I loved. I loved. I loved what that paper meant to the city of Nashville, and uh, you know, just ask questions about everything because I didn't know anything. And you know, we improved the way things were going. And um, but the company, Village Voice, was acquired by another company. I didn't like. That structure as well, and approached some local investors about uh, uh, backing me to start a company that would do local niche media. Um, And over time, and that was Southcom. And over time, you know, we became the second largest uh, publisher of alt weeklies in the country. At one time, we had eight of those. Um, But that business model was increasingly getting under pressure. And in 2014, I sort of discovered B2B um, and bought some of the assets of Cygnus. Um, and, uh, you know, began to learn, you know, the B2B, uh, model as well. It was a lot of the same skills, uh, but a much better business model, uh, than the, than the local niche publishing. And so anyway, that's what sort it of brought me to, brought me to endeavor. Um, I was trying to sort of pivot, uh, Southcom into being that, um, but, um, our investors, for a variety of reasons, started they wanted to liquidate their portfolio. So I started a new company and then bought the B2B side of Southcom from them. Uh, that sort of became a, a core early part of Endeavor.
0: And so you started with the alt-weeklies and then moved into B2B. We talked a little bit about alt-weeklies when we met at the Omeda conference. Yep. In 2022, do you think there is any... Business model or strategy that works with alt weeklies, or are they just going to continue a slow decline?
1: I struggled to find one. Um, and, and I hate to say that because the, I I think alt weeklies were an important part of not just their communities, but also the media landscape. Um, you know, at one time it was a great, you know, training ground for young journalists, um, where they could go and write long form, you know, stories. We had a lot of people, you know, came through the scene and other of our papers that went on to, um, you know, very prominent roles, you know, nationally. Um, and, um, but they were increasingly, you know, that was a, or 10 years ago, even maybe 15 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, a third or more of the revenue for those papers was, uh, was classified ads and that is gone now, you know? And so, um, it just, they're, they're a much smaller business than they, than they once were. Um, you know, and so the ones that seem to be doing well to me are ones that have sort of a robust events business associated with them. Um, you know, the ones where they've got, um, you know, local ownership, um, you know, strong, lo- you know, strong local connections, you know, so I do think you will still see alt-weeklies um, exist around the, around the country. I don't think you'll see people rolling them up into big, you know, uh, investment portfolios, <laughs> um, you know, that I think those days are, are past.
0: So you got your taste of B2B in 2014 when you bought the some assets from sickness, you launched Endeavor in 2017. What was the thesis with launching Endeavor in 2017? And how do you see that kind of playing out over the, it's almost five years now that you've been running the business. Right. Well, so in
1: 2017, I sort of looked around and, and, I mean, it's a very, B2B is a very fragmented industry in this country. And, um, and in 2017, it looked to me like all of the aggregators had been aggregated, right? That the, the big buyers had either been rolled up into large event companies, um, or, or had been rolled up into Informa, uh, frankly. And so, um, and so there wasn't really a a major platform company that was um, available as an exit for the family-owned companies as people were getting ready to retire, and so that was really my basic thesis that I took to my early investors and said, you know, that if i can build an infrastructure you know that can that can bolt on you know one acquisition after another i can build a company with scale as these founders or family-owned businesses as they start you know getting ready to retire and i want to do it in a coherent way i don't want to just randomly attach things you know um i believe in in diversification of both the um, revenue streams and then also of the industry served um but in B two B, I mean, a lot of the success of of B two B enterprise is determined by what's going on in the underlying industry, right? You don't want to be you want to be the, the the media outlet for a, a dying industry, you know, and so or one that's I didn't want to be one that was sort of wildly cyclical either, um, you know. And so I was trying to find things that were you know sort of stable industries, you know, that had you know good long term trajectory. Um, And so you'll see, you know, we're in areas like manufacturing and utilities and dentistry and, you know, things that tend to persist over time, city services. Um, And so, you know, I I was trying to sort of build these buckets of brands that served audiences um, in these industries that I thought would be, be relatively stable. I also looked out and said, you know there's some big companies in the space, hundred million dollar companies that serve a single industry, you know, uh, a North star travel or a Randall Riley or a Hanley wood that were built around serving a particular vertical. And so there's really no reason if you want to scale that you can't do that in multiple verticals at the same time, you just have to be intentional about it. And so that was my thesis was that we could build, you know, these, um, buckets of audiences and then create, um, really defensible space um, by having, you know, larger and larger audiences that were engaged with niche publications that were adjacent to each other um, and that over time we'd be able to do, we'd be able to offer more services to them than just the individual media brands could, um, you know, and so, you know, we could, um, we could do, we could assemble unique audiences for them. Um, from adjacent brands. So, um, you know, and and so that's been the, the sort of premise behind driving our acquisition strategy.
0: And so you mentioned the, the aggregators becoming large enough and then getting acquired, and you've got, you mentioned Informa. In 2019, you kind of reversed Informa's strategy a little bit by acquiring a bunch of their media assets. And right. earlier that year, you bought a bunch of media assets from Clarion Events. Now, with those two companies have in common is a very much an events first approach to their business which is ironic because six months later COVID hits right right why do you think so many of those companies were willing and almost excited to get rid of their media assets and why do you think you know or not why do you think but do you think now they regret that
1: yeah, so the the opportunities with both the former Pinwell brands and the, the uh, and then the, the brands that we acquired from Informa, uh, you know, that wasn't part of the original model. But when it came when it came along, I, I jumped at the opportunity um, and uh, because you know I, I saw those as really valuable audiences and really value- and brands that were deeply engaged with those audiences that we could build you know a business around um really the same sort of notion that we had around acquiring smaller companies only i could do a, a much larger transaction all in one fell swoop and and also bring on some really good talent you know that the, both of those companies had been leaders in the space and had some you know really strong people uh, there and many of those people you know, run departments or divisions for us today, um, that came over with those two transactions. Um, in fact, June Griffin, our president came with the, the Penwell transaction. Um, and, uh, you know, two of our five EVPs and several of our department heads came from the, the Informa transaction. So, so I knew I was getting, getting good people. I think that those decisions on the part of those companies were driven by, you know, um, financial markets, essentially, that valued, the, at the time anyway, valued event businesses higher than they valued the media businesses. You know, I think over the last couple of years that the financial players have begun to see that there is actually real value value in the first-party data that we gather, in, uh, sp- specifically in the digital audiences and digital engagement that we have. Um, and so I don't know that they regret those decisions, but I, I'm really glad that they, you know. I feel like we got a great value um, in doing those transactions and that really sort of built the core of the company.
0: A big, I think, secret or part of the success you've had with acquiring these businesses is your deep understanding of how to put debt to work. Can you talk about how you have used debt to acquire these businesses? And I guess as part of that, I'd love to understand, especially when using debt, how you determine whether a company is a good deal. Yeah. So
1: um, in 2014, when I purchased uh, the Cygnus assets, I didn't really know how I was going to go about putting that money together when I started down the process. Um, But everyone in Nashville referred me to this investment banker, Linda Costello, who was a master at raising debt. Um, and so I hired her to help me raise the money and I learned from her, um, along the way, um, uh, sort of how much leverage you can effectively put on a company, what types of entities, whether it be banks or subordinated lenders or unit lenders, what they will do in terms of, of multiples. And I realized it was all about ratios, right? It, and, you know, and then you just have to, um you ask for the right amount of money for the size that the lender wants to lend. Um, you know, and so if you can, if you can line those things up, you know, you know, what, what amount of debt that a, a company, a, a fund or a bank is, is willing to do and what ratios they'll lend to, you know, we've had great success in sort of, uh, putting the right, you know, the right amount of debt on, on a deal. The nice thing about, you know, the, the small B2B media companies is that the, they trade at multiples of, of EBITDA. And so everything I buy, you know, I buy, uh, you know, on a multiple of EBITDA sort of based on what the revenue mix is and the, the trends that they have. Um, and then, uh, you know, I use part of it as, you know, equity essentially from our profits, um, and then layer in what, you know, bank debt or seller debt that I need to, to complete the deal. Um, and so it's been able, it, it's let me use leverage, To really ramp up the company quickly,
0: and over the years you've been buying these companies, at least since 2017, have you noticed a change in the value of them from an EBITDA perspective? You know, from a different business model perspective, where are those EBITDA levels falling? Um, For
1: uh, for small companies, um, you know, it's still for if it. It depends on the, the the mix of revenue right so you know print is valued the lowest um digital is higher it's a little higher now than it was uh, you know a, a couple of years ago um events still tend to carry the the highest value but really only for large events um smaller events you know are not that much you know are not really valued much higher than 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 digital uh media is and so You know, and then you sort of factor in the size of the business as well. So, and the trajectory of it, you know, is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it flat? Um, And so, you know, on the low end, you know, you can acquire things for sort of three times EBITDA. Um, You know, I sort of cap out, you know, um, a couple turns higher than that in terms of, you know, when I'm buying, you know, small companies. Um, But when you get to scale, um, the multiples go up considerably because there are fewer of those companies to buy um and so there's a lot more competition for uh for bigger companies and so you know there's an opportunity for us to create value by uh, assembling these smaller companies into a larger company um and you know obviously lenders are more comfortable with that you know there's 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 less risk if you have you know seven thousand clients than if you have you know 70 right um and so um, you know, when you're doing a hundred million dollars revenue when you're, then when you're doing two. And so they're willing to sort of lend us more and they're, they're more comfortable with the, the debt as we scale. Cause they know there's some resilience built into that, uh, built into that scale.
0: I know we're talking a lot about acquisitions, but because you have been so busy with them, I mean, I, what is it? Eight or nine this year. I want to learn That's as eight. much as I can. Yeah. yeah it's done
1: yeah, eight so far this year.
0: <laughs> it is unbelievable. I guess, you know, one of the one of the things I think about when it comes to these acquisitions and also hitting that scale is you move into multiple different industries. How do you decide to move into a new industry? So like I was looking at your dentistry, right? And You've got like three or four uh, uh, assets there. But then I was looking at manufacturing, you've got a lot more. How do you decide to move in to one of these new industries so that you do get the benefits of scale and that you can support it with new resources?
1: Yeah. So, we sort of selected the the larger verticals, if you will, er, early on. Um, and some of that was driven by what was available in the, in the Pinwell and Informa acquisitions, you know, to be honest. Um, but uh, we sort of said, you know, this is where we're going to, you know, carve out a beachhead. Um, and then, you know, the acquisitions we've been doing this year have been in s- sort of adjacencies within those larger umbrellas, if you will, you know. And so, they've been they've been new audiences that fit into our manufacturing group or new audiences that fit into our, um, buildings group. Um, and so sometimes that's driven by what the the clients, uh, you know, that we, our existing clients are asking for. So for example, we went out looking for um, architects as an audience because we didn't have architects and in our building, you know, in our buildings group, that was something that was asked about a lot. We had, you know, a brand that we had started called smart building technology that was interested in architects. We had, you know, some lighting brands that were interested in architects. We had some school design, you know, so we had a bunch of different brands that were interested in, you know, in reaching that audience. And so we went looking for an architectural, uh, audience and found you know found some brands that were you know owned by a couple of entrepreneurs that we're willing to sell and bring that in because it filled a gap that we felt like, you know, that we felt like we had um, in our portfolio and just made that buildings group, you know, more robust to now be able to serve that, that audience as well. So that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I think about it. I wouldn't want to buy a single brand to go into entirely new area. Right. So uh, you commented in your email of the other day about, you know, how we could go into retail. Like I wouldn't want to go buy one brand that was in retail because it'd be an orphan in our structure. Right. And so, I would want to buy a larger group at a time. If I was going to enter that, I would want to enter it in a bigger way so that I had a cluster of things, um, to, to really make it a group and not just a, not just a single title. So, but you can see, I mean, you know, there's some places where we're further along in the model than others. Um, you know, I heard you interview Tim at, at GovExec and, it, you know, they've done a, a similar sort of thing with government services to what we're trying to do. Just we're trying to do it in a bunch of different buckets. And um, and so, um, you know, you, you can see in some areas like manufacturing, where I have a lot of titles. I'm further down the road than I am in say healthcare. where We only have a handful of titles, but healthcare is a really great space. And given the opportunity, I would acquire more titles into that into that vertical and build that out into a more robust uh, division than it is today.
0: So we've talked a lot about acquisitions and I've written about how it seems as if everyone gets very excited about acquisitions, but the real hard work comes after you've paid for the company in that integration. How, How does Endeavor systemize the integration of companies? You bought, again, eight in the first four and a half months of this year how do you integrate these companies where you're able to get them from a cluster of individual assets to one large company
1: right we've done 21 total in four and a half years so we took a little pause there during COVID. but um the uh yeah i mean we built a system i mean and knowing we were going to do it we made decisions that would facilitate uh that and so you know one thing was selecting some uh, several major systems that were sort of end-to-end systems um, that because uh, it's easier to convert everybody over to three platforms, for example, than it is to you know convert everybody over to six. You know, and so while well, you give up a little bit in the specialty of having you know just a CRM or you know um, uh, just a content management system, yeah, you know, in buying a broader platform, you may lose some functionality in in some areas, but it definitely simplifies the conversions of. Of, of major platforms. And so we don't really give anybody a choice. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've seen go wrong in, you know, acquisitions at other companies is that they leave everybody on their, you know, on their platforms. And you just can't run a company that way. You got to get everybody onto you know, common systems. And so we do that relatively quickly, you know, um, sort of within 90 to 120 days, we convert everybody over to, uh, to our major, major platforms. Minor systems can linger around for a while. You know, at one time, I think we had, you know, sort of, um, five different digital edition platforms we were doing, but, you know, they were all sort of the same and, you know, and it didn't matter that much, you know, I mean, so, um, because they weren't really managed centrally anyway, but for our major systems, you know, we, we do those migrations, you know, very quickly. And then we just have a process, you know, we, we designate um, a Sherpa for every acquisition who's the point person for answering questions and making sure that, you know, people are connected with the right departments to get, you know, to get the work done that they need to and keep the trains running on time and, you know, make sure that we're hitting deadlines for for that transaction. Um, and, um, you know, and then, uh, and then everybody just has to, you know, follow the, the playbook and the, and the timelines, we spend a lot of time, you know, orienting, uh, you know, new employees, not just through acquisitions, but also people we hire to the company, um, you know, and so we have a, you know, sort of dedicated onboarding process. Uh, to you know, help people understand the culture and how things are done, who does what, and, and things like that.
0: This episode is brought to you by Omida. Marketing automation is a critical part of the growth engine for publishers. But what are the must-have features in a marketing automation tool? Omida has a new playbook that gives you everything you need to find the right tool and the three elements needed to design great marketing campaigns. Download the playbook at omida.com playbook now, back to our discussion. So you mentioned before that print is the lowest EBITDA, and then digital, and then large events get the best. But you've acquired a lot of print assets over time, but we're continuing to move into a world of more and more digital. How do you think about when you acquire these media brands that also have print assets? do Do you envision or do you ever shut them down do you just kind of let them coast you know yeah. print is expensive how do you think through that yeah
1: so when i think about buying something i think about it in terms of the audience that it's bringing to the table but i price it based on what the rep, you know on what the revenue mix is um, so what i'm willing to pay is based on you know their historical revenues but why I'm buying it is for the audience. And so, you know, with that comes a conviction that we're going to be able to move those print audiences into more digital audiences over time. And that we're going to be able to offer, you know, more advanced digital services that smaller companies just can't deliver. You know, we have a whole team that does webinars and a whole team that does Legion and a team that does video creation and, you know, a team that does custom content creation. And so we can immediately offer those the, those uh, salespeople with the, the new print publications, a whole array of products that they can offer their clients that they may not have been able to do before. Um, And so, you know, we, we buy it with a, I mean, we continue to do print because, you know, our clients still want it. And I would rather them be um, paying us and having a relationship with us that we can then sell them into other things than for them to be going somewhere else. Um, And so I don't just, you know, I don't typically just sort of shut down print. We definitely look at the profitability of it. You know, one of the nice things about B2B is that there's not really an obligation to publish a certain number of issues. Um, And so, you know, we, in some cases we, you know, do a monthly magazine. In other cases, it comes out 10 times a year or eight or six or four, you know, so we sort of try and optimize the number of print issues we're doing for the revenue attached to it. Um, I do think it's a good, um, it's not a loss leader for us, but it's a it's a low margin leader, if you will. Um, but, you know, people still have success. You know, they still want to include print as part of their, their marketing campaigns. I just want to then sell them into you know, other products that we can that we can also do for them. It's also a good marketing tool for the sites and the newsletters itself. Right. I mean, it, it lands on the right people's desk. You know, we're able to gather information, you know, about where they work and what their job titles are and things like that as part of the free subscription that they get, that gives us valuable, you know, information about who our readers are um, that, that we can match up with when they come online. Um, you know, cause we're matching it up to their email address.
0: So I saw on the, the site, I believe that you now have 9 million users across the whole portfolio of sites
1: closing in on 10. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It'll be nice to the double digits. How, how do you sell against that audience? Do you do it at the publication level or do partners come in saying they want to target a certain audience and then it doesn't matter what publication it's more just here are the people that are, we have
1: to show. Good question. And we do it both ways, right? I mean, the, the historic way is at the brand level and that's the way, you know, uh, most everybody was selling when they came a part of Endeavor. But increasingly where we're seeing the opportunities and the growth is the ability to sort of create a customized audience, right? That's the thing that we can do uniquely that nobody else can because we have these clusters of, of titles. And so, you know, if somebody wants to reach um, industrial engineers, I can go and get the industrial engineers from industry week, but also from uh, plastics machinery and laser focus world and foundry and pull all of those together into to an audience and then deliver a webinar to them if that's what the you know if that's what the client wants to do so they get it they get a unique audience and so increasingly that's where we see you know growth in the business um, and and a real competitive advantage over you know other publishers who can't assemble that same unique audience
0: so now, with so many publications and hundreds of employees, how do you how do you structure the team? Is it by cluster? Mm-hmm. Is it by you know does each cluster have its own sales and marketing and te- you know teams or is it is there some shared services? How do you how do you structure yeah. the team now?
1: So, um, we have operating units, um, that, um, have, that are mostly, um, the editorial teams and the sales teams, um, uh, that are in those brand units. And so, you know, and, and what's interesting about this business is that, you know, many of those people more identify with the industry they serve than they do with the media industry, you know? So if you ask them, they're in the oil and gas industry or the you know, electric utilities, because they are so deeply ingrained in those industries that they, that they know and, and work with, um, and they roll up to, you know, to group publishers and then EVPs who are overseeing larger and larger segments of those, of those audiences. And then everything else is in a shared service. And so there's, you know, we have an event marketing team and a brand marketing team and an audience marketing team, um, and, um, you know, a, a webinar team, you know, custom content production. So all of the rest of it is a shared service environment who's. Because clients are really those brand units, um, you know, so they are, they are working with the, the operating units to deliver um, on the promise that they've made to clients.
0: So I want to talk about the business models and revenue now. So over the past few years, there's been a massive push to digital subscriptions. I know you offer print subscriptions, but has Endeavor jumped like headfirst into the digital subscription business or have you sort of just kind of kept your foot off that pedal? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, not, not much. I mean, we have, um, really one brand that has a significant amount of, of digital subscription revenue. Um, and it's because it did when we bought it. Um, the, um, it's not something that we've, you know, that we've really pushed. We, you know, we are definitely interested in building, you know, uh, sort of recurring, recurring revenue streams. Um, and so, you know, we have some, some membership, uh, type of, of, uh, Products in in certain groups, um, but it's still a relatively minor uh, minor part of what we of what we are doing. Most of it, honestly, is marketing based uh, revenue. Uh, you know, we do a little bit of continuing education and some research, and um, you know, and then you know, we do have some memberships things. We have a few little data businesses that we're you know trying to develop, but uh, the bulk of it is still uh, marketing marketing purposes.
0: I want to talk about a few offerings because for some, some, for, to some extent, I'm just very curious about them. And for others, I think the audience will really benefit from how you think about it. First, lead gen, bread and butter of B2B business. Can't yep. provide leads to your partners. They're going to go find them somewhere else. What, how do you structure your lead gen offerings? Is it just like, you know, we'll give you 25 leads in exchange for $50 a lead? Or are you structuring it more in a more advanced way? And how do you price it?
1: Yeah, it's not going to be $50 a week. <laughs> it's getting more than that. <laughs> um... You know, I mean, one of the nice things about B2B is that a a lot of the things people are buying are rather expensive. And so a lead is really valuable. Um, You know, that's, that's one of the big differences between the old consumer stuff that I did where you're selling concert tickets and beer, you know, as opposed to, you know, selling fire trucks and submarines, you know, (laughs) so um, that, that, you know, that a lead is valuable. you know, so it's not necessarily about the the number that you're delivering as it is the quality. Um, And so you know and so our pricing structure is really based on how qualified that lead is how much how much interest we've been able to determine that that person that person has before we hand them over as a lead and so you know we really like when we are able to sort of do multiple screens, uh, to determine their interest or, you know, or scoring, you know, that they've, you know, they've downloaded this white paper, they've read this many articles, they watched this, you know, they watched this webinar, you know, and then, oh, now they filled out the form requesting more information. Okay. That's a really great lead. You're going to pay a lot for that, you know, for us to drill down that far, but you also know at that point, it's going to be a productive phone call when you actually, you know, get in touch with them. Um, you know, and so that's um, so it's it's tiered that way sort of by the level of interest that, you know, they've shown before we before we hand them over as a lead to you.
0: So just so I can I want to say that back to you. So you'll have us you'll have a partner sponsor a series of articles, plus, say, a webinar, plus, say, a, a white paper download. And you'll track that person through the their, their reading of those articles. They're attending that webinar. They're downloading that white paper. You'll have acquired enough data about those people, and at that point, you provide the lead because they're aware of who that partner is in, in right. enough detail. We can
1: provide it anywhere along the uh, along the, the that journey, but we're, you're going to pay the most for the one that's completed the entire journey. You know, so um, you know, so we can, you know, we will do just a part of it if that's what you want. You know, if you just want to do a white paper, we'll put that out there, and you'll pay less for just that, than as opposed to the, the tiered, you know, level of interest. But, you know, I mean, as you know, I mean, with a sale, with a sales department, if you get, you know, 200 leads and all that means is that they opened an email, that's not all that valuable. Right. I mean, cause, uh, um, and so, um, you know, we will do that. You just don't pay as much for it as if we've actually really qualified the person for you.
0: And then you offer dozens of live events. I was on the event page this morning and the thought of having that many events a year about sixty, oh, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Uh, if I had any hair, I would be bald all over again. Thinking about that, um, what are the offerings like? How do you structure these events? Are they trade shows, are they small conferences? And then, I'm also curious, how have they been going this year? Have you yeah. noticed any unique behaviors by sponsors and attendees that have changed since before the pandemic?
1: so we don't have any giant trade shows um in that those have been priced out of my ratios for the way my financing was structured for me to really go after um the um, so are we we so we have three types of events we have uh what i would sort of say are small trade shows sort of you know a million to two million of revenue kind of kind of shows um that are their traditional shale show trade shows they you know, with exhibit floors and, you know, conference attached and things like that. Um, and then we have, uh, sort of traditional conferences, you know, that are a few hundred attendees, um, you know, where the, the, uh, usually the attendees are paying to be there. Um, and then there's some, you know, some sponsors that, you know, will have, you know, tabletop, you know exhibits or maybe a booth but but usually it's sort of a tabletop kind of environment um, and then we have hosted buyer events, um, you know, that are the, where the sponsors pay, the attendees come free. Um, and you know, over two days they are, you know, sitting in boardrooms and getting pre- you know, presentation after presentation from the sponsors and, you know, maybe doing the one-on-one speed dating thing, you know, a- as part of it. Um, and so, uh, so those are really sort of the three types of events that we do. Um, this year, the, um, uh, I mean, Attendance and revenue is up over last year. It's um, in some cases it's back to 2019 levels, but it varies by varies by industry. I was at our Utility Analytics uh, event yes uh, earlier this week, and it was a conference um, in uh, in New Orleans, and it was probably 80 or 85 percent of 2019 uh, sort of attendance uh, levels. Um, but we did our, uh, subsea tieback, uh, trade show in Galveston, um, in March. And it was, um, within 50 people of the number of people we had in 2019. So that's a, an event that in 2019 drew, uh, 1300 people. And I think this year we were at 1254. So that one was, that one was back. Um, and so it sort of varies a little bit by, by industry and by location, I think. Um, but certainly people are wanting to come back to, to live events and uh, seems to be headed in that direction.
0: Are people waiting much longer to oh, buy yeah. their tickets? Yeah,
1: yes, they are. Yeah, so I, that, and that I think is true across the industry. If you ask anybody who, who does these, that it's been it's a lot more nerve wracking because you know that they'll be very few registrations, very few registrations. And then three weeks out, all of a sudden it'll start to pick up. And then two weeks out, you're like, okay, we're actually going to have an event, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the day of, they're still signing up. So yeah, definitely much later, uh, you know, commitments out of attendees than, than we're used to have in the past. So, so when we you met, just believe it's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yes. You just, you just, you just have to believe when we met, you talked a little bit with me about your market research business. And I think I asked you the scenario, if I got 30 senior or heads of HR into a room for market research, how much would a partner pay for that? You said $30,000 or $20,000. Can you talk to me about how this business works and how Endeavor is thinking about expanding into this world?
1: Well, I'm very excited about the research business because I think I've discovered it's every bit as fragmented as the B2B media uh, space is. Um, and I realized that, you know, we're talking to the people who are you know interested in doing that research already. Right. I mean, it's the marketing departments that are, you know, that are interested in finding out um, about what their customers are thinking. Um, and, you know, and we often have their cust, you know, at least on the B2B side, we have their customers in our audience already. And so, um, you know, so we can assemble, um, audiences for them that they can, you know, ask questions of, you know, either in, you know, real life, uh, um, you know, focus groups, um, or virtual focus groups, you know, we've, we've always done some surveying of audiences, you know, for our clients. Um, but the, the recent, you know, research company that we bought, you know, sort of brought some expertise around doing, you know, live focus groups that we didn't really have in house before. Um, and so I think this gives me the, it'll give me the capability and you know, to deliver that across, you know, all of our portfolio. And a lot of these small you know research companies, they have, they have, very skilled people in doing that what they didn't have was you know 180 sales reps out talking to all of these industry all of these marketers you know um and so i feel like you know we've got the opportunity to you know sort of really expand you know our offerings there uh over the next several years i mean i think ultimately research could be as big a business force as media is Uh, there's a lot of money spent on, on research and you know knowing what your you know clients are looking for what they think you know I mean, it can be things, you know, we can do research that's, that's consumer oriented research for our B2B clients as well. Right. Um, You know, they want to test their ad campaigns, you know, before they go out to market on the consumer side, you know, we can assemble those panels and, you know, um, and, and test those campaigns out for them. So I'm excited about that piece.
0: And it's the same sales team that sells media that is also selling the market research.
1: So they're the, they're the, they're the point of contact with the client. We have, we have research um, experts in house that they bring in. If, if the conversation goes that way, then we have people who are, you know, who are experts in that, that can come in and, you know, really customize a proposal and talk to them about what they're trying to do. So we don't expect our salespeople to be experts in everything that we do. Um, But they can, they can begin enough of the conversation to determine if there's interest and then, you know, bring our experts in to help them out.
0: So I want you to think a little bit forward next three to five years for Endeavor. Will the business look fundamentally the same that it does today? Just perhaps more industries. Will it evolve into new areas? I just love to know what you're thinking about The coming
1: half decade. Um, you know, three to five years from now, um, I expect to be about three times the size we are today. Um, you know, I, I, Tell people I'm, I'm, I'm notorious for moving the goalpost. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, um, when I started the company, I wanted to build a company that was a hundred million in revenue and we got there in two years and now I want to build a company that ma- has a hundred million of EBITDA. And so, uh, that's my goal, you know, in three to five years, I want to cross that, that threshold. Um, but I think, um, we will still do many of the same things. I think what you will see is, is, a uh, uh, that will be Uh, have larger audiences in the the industry clusters that we're serving. Um, We may bolt on, you know, some new industries as if the opportunity arrives, you know, to, to acquire a company that, you know, has a strong, you know, foothold in a, in a given vertical that would make sense for us. I would certainly be open to that, but I think you will see us continue to layer in products as well. So like I was talking about with the research, you know, the, you know, we're building out our own, you know, content studio. Um, You know, we, are, are, you know, working on some data products, you know, that we can roll out, um, across, uh, across different verticals. And so, um, you know, I think you will see us, you know, not only continue to sort of expand the verticals we're in bolt on verticals, but then also we can layer in once you've got that relationship with the clients and the, the audiences, we can layer in additional products as well. So, um, I'm looking for growth across all
0: of those things. I want to end with the same two questions that I ask every operator that comes on the show. First, what is a mistake you've made in your career that you wish you hadn't? And what did you learn from it?
1: That one was uh, thinking that I could fix broken publications. <laughs> the um, You know, for a lot of years, uh, you know, I, I, I bought I I really liked the alt weeklies, you know, I I liked what they meant to their cities and I knew it was a really challenged model and I thought I could fix them. Um, I thought we could solve the problem that had the right team that we could fix it. And, um, you know, and it was just hard and, um, you know, and and we weren't able to, to fix it. And I think, you know, I've learned, I don't, I don't buy fixer uppers anymore. Um, it's just, it was just, you know, you're just banging your head against the wall for too long. So,
0: And second, what is some advice you would give operators looking to build and grow their media companies? That,
1: well, the advice I would give them is that culture matters. Um, That it took me forever. I mean, I've been a CEO for 15 years, um, and it took me forever to realize that every company has a culture. You're either intentional about it or not, and it's way better to be intentional about it. And I think that's one thing we did right at Endeavor was from – from the outset, we said, these are our values. This is, you know, this is the way we're going to run the company. And if you don't fit with that, then, you know, best wishes to you, you know, that we want people who are going to embrace these values. And it's just, it's made it a whole lot easier to weather challenges and, you know, deal, you know, deal with the the pandemic and the vagaries of life and the you know the challenges of a growing of a growing business if you've got a team that knows what you value and that you know has committed to sharing those
0: if you enjoyed this episode hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts if you want even more sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.